0: Welcome to The Workplace, a podcast by Cal Chamber. I'm Matthew Roberts, Employment Law Counsel and the Labor Law Helpline Manager with the California Chamber of Commerce. Welcome back, listeners. On our last podcast, we explored some of the more unusual employment and human resources issues that we've discussed on Cal Chamber's Labor Law Helpline. Well, we have a treat for you because we have more to explore. Returning for this adventure is my colleague and Labor Law Helpline advisor, Ellen Savage. Glad to have you back on the show,
1: Ellen. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So the last time we had you on, we talked about some really interested, interesting issues related to workplace video cameras and personal appearance and hygiene and you know dietary choices and what we can and can't heat up in the microwave. <laughs> um, those listeners out there, if you missed that one, I highly recommend you check it out, especially to get the answer to that age old question, how do we address hickeys in the workplace? <laughs> so Ellen, ready to dive into more unusual calls? We get more and more calls, yep. All right. So um, we're gonna dive into a section of calls that we get um, that I kind of describe as um, cost-saving calls for employers. So employers, of course, have a lot of overhead um, as businesses that they try to manage. And that'll often lead them to call us to make sure that they're not running afoul of any employment law rules because a lot of the overhead that they're trying to manage really is um, is employee wages or rest and meal breaks or things that, um, you know, cost significant overhead for the employers. So, um, you know, we have employers who try to get creative right about ensuring that their employees are working and not not working if they're going to pay them for it. Um, And, you know, we had a really interesting question um, that we were talking about off uh, you know, off the podcast, Ellen, about an employer who um, wanted to put an electronic code pad locks on the employee bathrooms, both to get in and to get out. And that one made me really raise my eyebrows like, really? Um, <laughs> so Ellen, can you describe what happened with that call and kind of the backstory behind that and what the employer was looking to do?
1: So this was an employer who had actually already set this up. Uh, he had put little code pad locks Everybody had their own individual code. Uh, and they needed to use it to get into the bathroom as well as to get out. And he was using this system to time them to see how long they were in there, to make sure nobody was taking bathroom breaks that were too long. He was very concerned about labor costs, and so he wanted to know if there was any issue with uh, having to have a code to get in and a code to get out so you could be timed. And, you know, there's not a specific labor code dealing with timing people in the bathroom yet right right Um, but this concerns me for several reasons first off privacy is there a reasonable expectation of privacy in how long it takes me to go to the bathroom maybe um second safety employees of course have the right to use the restroom at work and by timing them maybe you're not so subtly trying to discourage them from doing that which clearly is what this member was actually trying to do um Third, is there some disability discrimination there? Somebody has a disability that requires they maybe spend a little more time in the potty. Are we failing to accommodate them or discouraging them from doing what they need to do related to their disability? And honestly, last, it's just a really terrible morale issue for me.
0: Right. And, you know, I think when employers, you know, when they get creative with this, because they're really trying to hammer down these, you know, non-productive times, um, they really lose sight of the overall picture of you know their operations, you know, if you have employees that are going in and out of a bathroom with a key code to get in and out that's specific to them that they know is being tracked. Um, I think we're going to have some employee morale issues, as you said, and we're in an era where uh, employee retention is very difficult right now. And so, you know, Ellen, what are some other ways that employers can, you know, do to make sure that their employees are just being productive or ways to measure productivity or, um, you know, make sure that they're not taking too long of breaks, really?
1: Well, I think what I usually try to address with people is if your employees are taking really long breaks, you can talk with them. You know, you seem to use the restroom four or five times during each work period, you know, between your regular breaks then if an employee brings up that it's disability related, let's talk about accommodation. What can we do to better accommodate you? Um, other than that, I mean, people need to use the restroom. It's just a fact of life.
0: Right. I, th- I think we can use some other metrics out there to make sure that our employees are being productive without yeah. being the bathroom monitor like my child has at elementary school. So um, <laughs> moving on, um, we had another question that I thought was fascinating and it's almost literally penny pinching at this point, but an employee quits and wants their check mailed to them. And we know under the labor code rules, if an employee quits, um, you know, without 72 hours notice, um, they can request to have their check mailed to them whenever it's ready within the 72 hours after they quit Um, and they can request that. The employer didn't want to pay for that mailing. Isn't that
1: right, Ellen? Yeah, this is actually the same employer as the question we just spoke about. Um, And he wanted to know if he could deduct the cost of the postage stamp from the employee's final paycheck. Now, I know postage costs have been going up, but labor code says employee who quits with less than 72 hours notice has the legal right to have their check mailed if they so request. End of story. That 40 whatever seven cent postage stamp deduction could end up costing you 30 days waiting time penalties. So, you know, penny wise pound foolish there.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, Alan. And this is just one of those proverbial costs of doing business. Yeah. Um, speaking of costs to do business, employers um, will often provide their employees with um, company equipment, um, you know, to do their job. There'll be some tools or clothing or, um, name badges or things like that. Um, and employers routinely end up with issues where employees are losing these things or not returning them or keeping them. Um, Ellen, you had a really fascinating question about an employer's idea to kind of mitigate this property loss for them. Take us through that question.
1: So this was an owner of a small restaurant and what he wanted to do to make sure that he got aprons and badges back at the end of every shift was when the employees showed up for their shift, he wanted to collect their car keys, put them in a basket, and they couldn't have their car keys back at the end of the shift unless they turned in their apron and their badge. Um, I can't really think of any law that would possibly allow this. I don't know about you, Matt, but I can't think of anything that would allow you to confiscate an employee's car keys. It's true. Sometimes employees don't return uniforms or tools or other equipment, but the state labor commissioner in California says, guys, that's just a cost of doing business. And in addition, keeping an employee's car keys can land you in a whole lot of other legal problems that are going to cost you a lot more than the cost of that, uh, that badge and that, that uh, apron.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the big distinction here is those, those car keys aren't ours as employers, right? And so if we're going to, you know, seize or search, you know, employee property, we have to have this really heightened legitimate business reason. And getting your apron back or getting your badge back, it's just, it's not going to meet that standard. And so you're going to run into a very serious problem with, you know, taking employee property in that fashion in order to get, you know, your equipment or your, uh, your uniforms back. Um, Okay, Ellen, let's shift gears to travel. Um, You know, travel expenses keep going up and up and up. Hotel rooms, um, flight tickets are expensive, but travel is an integral part of a lot of our employers and a lot of our members' businesses. And something that gets brought up, and I know it's been brought up with you, and it's been brought up with me as well, is employers want to require employees to share hotel rooms with they travel to save on the travel expenses. Because as we know, employers are responsible for covering all those work required travel expenses. Ellen, what do you think about this? What did you tell the member when you got this?
1: You know, surprisingly, there is nothing in the law that would prevent you from requiring employees to share a hotel room. Um, You'll want to stop and think about accommodations for disabilities. For example, uh, let's say I have a sleep disorder and the person that you're rooming me with snores really loud. Uh, Maybe I'm going to ask for an accommodation to have my own room. You might also maybe get some religious accommodation issues, uh, sharing, particularly if it's with sort of a member of the opposite gender. And, you know, hopefully just employers aren't requiring that anyway. Uh, hopefully we're assigning people of the same gender uh, as a general rule. But yeah, other than that, surprisingly, you can make people share hotel rooms.
0: Yeah, And I think you just need to be ready, as you said, with all those reasonable accommodation issues um, and the, you know, the workplace safety and the workplace comfort level, Um, things that those hotel rooms, if we're sharing with two employees, it's just like another work site. So if we're having harassment issues or if we're having hostile work environment issues, those are things we're just gonna have to address even in a hotel room that they share. So um, definitely something that they need to consider um, if they're going to do that. But as you said, the law does not automatically prevent an employer from doing that, you just have a lot to consider. Um, Okay, let's shift gears now to interpersonal relationships office romances. Um, and, and those kind of things that really just kind of remind us all that although we talk about the employment laws in the context of cases and statutes, this is a very real human endeavor. And so, Ellen, I thought you had a very interesting question about whether the member could fire an employee just simply because they refused to speak to me. So Ellen, can you take us through the backstory on that one? And, and what happened with that call?
1: Yeah, so an employer called me and said, hey, look, my employee refuses to speak to me. Can I fire her? So, yes, of course, refusing to speak to your boss is insubordination, and that's an offense that you could definitely terminate an employee for. But on this particular call, I thought to myself, well, what makes an employee refuse to speak to their employer? So I asked, any idea why she won't speak to you? And this member told me, yeah, well, We were having an affair, and my wife, who works in our office too, found out. So I had to end things with the employee, and now she won't speak to me.
0: Oh, my. Well, Ellen, um, what should the member do next, then, really?
1: Uh, 1-800-LAWYER. Call your legal (laughs) counsel right away. Um, You know, this brings to mind the fact that I can only help you on the helpline if you give me all the information. Without this critical piece of information, this guy would have hung up and thought, okay, I can fire her. So um, yeah, this is definitely one to talk to legal counsel about. This is beyond what we can do on the helpline.
0: Right. Um, and getting into that kind of inner office romance that you know we had on that last call, I had a call um, in from a member where the owner found out that one of her employees who was pregnant was having an affair with another employee. Um, the, the employee who was pregnant was married and, and presumably was pregnant with her, her spouse and, but she was having an affair with another employee who was not the father of her baby. And she wanted to know, can I fire one or both of them? Oh dear. Um, yeah. So, you know, we talked about some concerns about, uh, what her real concern about this and what drove the question was, I don't want the spouse coming to my place of business after finding out about this and creating a workplace safety issue. Um, to which, you know, I I think is understandable. Um, But what do you think about this, Ellen?
1: So, yeah, this is another situation, just like our first question, where affairs within the office can cause HR problems. And that's why a lot of companies have policies that prohibit romantic relationships between employees when there's a conflict of interest. Now, that conflict of interest might be one employee supervising another or something along those lines. But what concerns me in this scenario is that the employee being pregnant doesn't really change anything in our analysis in terms of, was there a conflict of interest in that situation? Did she supervise him or vice versa? If not, then we don't want to treat her any differently simply because she's pregnant. That actually could backfire and lead to claims of pregnancy discrimination. If you allow other people to date in the workplace, The fact that she's pregnant doesn't change that. Uh, But as you mentioned, whenever there's a romantic relationship in the workplace where one or more of the parties is married or living with someone else or seriously committed to someone else, then we get involved or get concerned about issues with employees behaving unprofessionally or even to workplace violence. So this is another one of those where you might want to check in with legal counsel before you move forward
0: right all right ellen last one and this is a great one one of my favorites that i've ever gotten but i had a member call and they're in they're a, a a pizza business and the employee was delivering a pizza to a customer well it turns out that the employee who delivered the pizza put his name and his phone number and a message for the customer to call him um as kind of you know a flirtatious thing with little hearts and things around it on the box and (laughs) delivered it to the customer the member gets a call back the next day from an irate person and the person said your pizza delivery employee just hit on my wife and asked her to call him with little hearts on the pizza box he has sexually harassed my wife we want three million dollars and so (laughs) what the member said was Oh, my gosh. What do I do here? Uh, am I liable to these people? What do I do with the employee? Ellen, what do you think?
1: Well, that's quite the special delivery of a pizza. <laughs> um, you know, the employment laws generally are not going to make you liable for your employee sexually harassing a customer. Uh, you're supposed to protect your employees from harassment, but technically you're not liable for harassment of a customer Unless there's some type of what's called professional relationship sexual harassment. The code actually covers things like doctor-patient relationships or lawyers and clients, real estate agents and their clients. Uh, There's a whole list. But pizza delivery is not on that list. Um, So you're not on the hook, at least under the employment laws for sexual harassment laws. Can you discipline or even terminate your pizza delivery guy for this? Of course you can.
0: Right. And I I think that was the key thing for the member was, you know, really, what do I do with this employee at the end of the day? (laughs) So (laughs) I got to tell one of my most memorable questions, Ellen. I think you should close us out by telling us one of your most memorable questions. So what do you have for us, Ellen?
1: So I think in 25 plus years here at the chamber and on the helpline, the most memorable call I've ever had was from an HR director at a small company. I had talked to her several times before She called me one day to ask me about what an employee's rights are for pregnancy, disability leave. Now, that's a pretty common question around here, so I didn't think twice about it, but what made it stand out in my mind, even still, is she kept putting me on hold, like every two minutes. Can you hold on a minute? So I thought, well, okay, you're in HR, you got a busy life, maybe you've got something important going on, and I asked her if maybe I should call her back later when it was a quieter time. She informed me, no, in fact, she was putting me on hold because she was in active labor in the hospital. And every time she had a contraction, she was putting me on hold. The pregnancy leave was actually for her. Uh, She was about to have a baby and she wanted to know how much time she could take off of work and what her SDI rights were and all of that. And after that point, she didn't even bother to put me on hold. We just kept talking as she worked through each contraction. So yeah, I remember that one
0: well. <laughs> that is a wild story, Ellen. Um, I think it's also a great grand finale, really, to this series that we put together here in terms of, as i have like to continue to say, like this is really the human element of, of yeah. human resources and employment law, because that's a lot of what employment is, is human interaction. So Ellen, this, this was very much fun. Um, I think we really brought the human element um, into this podcast and into this series, and I thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks, Matt. It was a great time.
0: And thank you listeners for tuning into The Workplace. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Cal Chambers' podcast by visiting calchamber.com.